0: When my mother confronted me and said, what are you going to do? You got to go to graduate school. And I said, well, I'll be a mafia lawyer.
1: You like that? I'll go be a mob lawyer. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. And I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintained, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. Oftentimes, people reach out to ask, what are the requirements to being a guest on Conversations with Connors? They're first and foremost, to be someone I know, like, and trust, and or admire. Second, to be successful. And I subjectively identify that as someone that lives a life by design, not by default. And last, but certainly not least, someone who contribute a cornerstone of their success to the relationships with those that they have developed. Now, let me introduce you to my good friend, Joseph A. Bondi, because as you will quickly find out, he embodies all three of these criterias. Joe is a world-renowned criminal defense attorney, with a passion for social justice, criminal reform, and most famously for his mission to end cannabis prohibition. He's been a life member of Normal, and for those of you who don't know, that's the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. He's also the vice president of the CCA, the Cannabis Cultural Association, and the founder of the Cannabis Law and Policy Livestream, aka podcast called In the Know 420. It's excellent, by the way. He's also a faculty member of the Cardoza Law School's intensive trial advocacy program, not to mention the father of three amazing kids. Joe's not just one of the brightest individuals you'll ever meet, but one of the most articulate. The New York Times summed it up best when they described him as being, quote unquote, armed with the eloquent demeanor of a surgeon. As you will hear, it's fun just to listen to him speak. During the course of our conversation, we had the opportunity to learn about Joe's background and ascent, through the legal ranks and his podcast in the know 420 as it relates to relationships Joe talked about relationships that are important to him one in particular his mentor he also shares how he has amassed the war chest of good relationships and how they have served him our conversation is loaded with good topics anecdotes and great quotes As you will tell, Joe is one of the more passionate people you will come across. Just wait until he starts talking about the cannabis community and social justice. Actually, rather than make you wait, let me take you to my conversation with my good friend, Joe Bondi. Enjoy. Thank you for having me. Thank you, man. We're going to have some fun. You're pretty an amazing guy. How many years now? Have we known each other? I don't know, four, something like that? Yeah, it feels a a lot longer than that. You're, uh, I feel like a kindred spirit in a lot of ways. Very impressive on so many levels as an individual, not only your track record, professionally. Actually, speaking of that, do you mind edifying the audience on who you are and some of the things that you've done? Oh, yeah. I mean, that alone could be an hour. Uh, (laughs) Audience. (laughs) I'm Joseph Bondi, and I
0: am a criminal defense attorney, principally practicing in New York. I'm in private practice. I represent people who are generally in a lot of trouble. I've also developed a expertise in cannabis law, cannabis business law, as well as criminal law. And I sit on the board of a couple of not-for-profit groups, the Cannabis Cultural Association, which is a 3,000-member 501c3 group situated really centered in New York City that is designed to obliterate the disparity of legal enforcement against communities of color and to ensure their equal participation in the nascent cannabis industry. I'm a member of Normals National Legal Committee, Life Member, and I'm also on the board of directors of this great, another 501c3 called Veterans Ananda, which is a group in New York State up in Syracuse area that is dedicated to cultivating and processing hemp with veterans growing the hemp for the purpose of benefiting veterans groups and have had the real privilege of representing maybe a thousand people during the past 23 years from all walks of life and all stages of litigation. Earlier in the year, we sued Jeff Sessions in the federal cannabis lawsuit. I was a member of a much larger team, but that is a really kind of a milestone case that's still working its way through the appellate courts. Um, And that's me. Yeah. <laughs> you forgot
1: about what about your podcast?
0: Oh mine, I'm like oh, I forgot about it. I <laughs> have in, yeah, the no 420, in the no four two oh in the no four two oh I'm in episode maybe eighty two or three or something. You're right. Well. And we used to run it off talkradio.nyc. Now I do it live streaming on Facebook every Friday at eleven AM Eastern Standard Time in the No Four Two O. And what I do is I'm, like much as you are, the biographer for my special guests who are cannabis thought leaders, and I interview them and talk with them about what has made them a great advocate or an activist or a grower or a business person and kind of the advice that they may have and every show with the advice that they may have for people who are also trying to get involved in cannabis. And so that's given me a really wonderful opportunity to network with some of the greatest thought leaders in the industry and to offer them, just like you offered me, that nice thing about being on the show, right? (laughs) And being put in a really kind of a good light. So I've really found that show to be a wonderful conduit for me to develop in my network.
1: I remember the inaugural show and uh, Pat and I, so we we were there for the first one and you tried telling us that was your first time and we both, we left there like, there's no way because you were a natural. (laughs) That was in November in 2016. And we had
0: Keith Straub on, who is the founder of Remains, the executive director of the Normal
1: Foundation. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that was excellent. I can't believe you've done 82 already. So for those who aren't familiar with this space, I mean, putting on one of these shows is a significant amount of work. Yeah,
0: it takes a lot of energy. I mean, what I found was helpful to me as I started my show as kind of an advertisement for the law practice. Mm -hmm. And of course, that really didn't work, at least not in the beginning. You know, now I've got a lot of people that Call me for a number of reasons, not necessarily the show, in cannabis-related cases. But I started that show as a means to try to attract clientele. Mm-hmm. And what I found along the way is that it gave me an enormous opportunity to learn from people in a way that also helped me be a better trial lawyer. And so when you're talking to a person and you're interviewing them, it's kind of like the direct examination. You're getting the story out in a way that's interesting and not merely and what happened next, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're then shifting with your guest and kind of asking them some of the more controversial questions, it's like a cross-examination in some ways. A gentle cross-examination. And then when you're using your voice, you're also practicing being an orator. So I found that as an ad and then as a trial workout, since I like to be on trial, but I'm not on trial every week or every month even, I would do that show. And it worked out nicely in that respect. I then began to go to some of these cannabis events in New York and people were like, oh, I heard your show or it's really like great. I love this show. that I had really nice people from within the cannabis community begin to want to be on the show agree to be on the show to react favorably to having been on the show and i found that that the development of this kind of organic from a little kernel right network was really really powerful as well like a really strong web came from that so that's kind of how i started it I've, i've now got a co-host who is the one of the co-founders of the cannabis cultural association and jacob plowden who came to me and asked if he could be my co-host and i was more than happy to have him on the show he's much younger than i am african-american guy really really talented brilliant and the two of us together talk to the guests. And that works out really, really well. And it's been a pleasure to also have another person on the show that's doing well and enjoying
1: it and thriving and bringing me an enormous amount of energy as we go. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a great show, by the way. Your show is a lot of people reach out to me knowing the background that I had in cannabis and inquire about whether it's business opportunities or people to speak with. And I always point them in the direction of your show. I feel like that's the great opportunity for them to learn who the experts are oh, yeah. and really learn the topics inside oh, it's out. It's great. You give me a microphone, I'll never stop. So.
0: <laughs> how, uh... Don't give a lawyer
1: a microphone. <laughs> Talk to me about how the relationships that you've built have transcended into your podcast. I was born and raised in New York. I was publicly educated in New York. I was a
0: relatively a social person. I can't say I was a complete extrovert. I think I'm a little more extroverted with a need for a little bit of back time. But Ambivert. Yeah, well, I'm not sure. What. Ambivert? ambivert? Ambivert, yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll run with it. So, you know, I had a lot of friends growing up. I had a lot of friends that were in the time of Nancy Reagan and just say no, and cannabis was so stigmatized, and you get busted, you get in a lot of trouble, and of course, it was the beginning when I was in my late teens, early 20s, of course, of the mandatory minimum sentencing regime. Although cannabis had been decriminalized in New York since the 1960s, people were routinely being arrested and and not merely ticketed, you know, whereas today, uh, not prosecuted, not ticketed. So it was a bigger deal. And I knew a lot of people involved with just smoking pot, like the high school kids smoke pot, they drink beer, drinking beer is not quite as good for you, right? Both unlawful at the time. And the relationships that I had in my youth caused me growing up and going to high school, even in the Bronx, the Bronx High School of Science, to begin to understand that some people got treated a little differently than other people did. Oftentimes it was a matter of demographics, social class, more often a matter of racial background, and that there really was such a thing as white privilege. And so I went to undergrad at Columbia, and I was still a Manhattan liberal, but I began to learn and absorb as many subject matters as I could. I had no idea or intention or belief I was going to be a lawyer in any respect, right? But that web of people who I had known when I was younger who were cannabis positives, shall we say, right? I think fermented in me when my mother confronted me and said, what are you going to do? You got to go to graduate school. And I said, well, I'll be a mafia lawyer. You like that? I'll go be a mob lawyer. I think that That reaction, and she said to me without skipping a beat, right, she didn't miss a beat. She said, well, then go to Brooklyn Law School because they graduated the best mafia lawyers, Joe, and I'll get you an application to Brooklyn Law School if you'll apply. And I said, okay, and I took the application. I applied. I got in. It was like July. I was fishing in New Hampshire, and I got this application by FedEx. I got it back to my mother. I got in for like the August class, and this was the most cosmic event of my life because the very first day of law school... I met my wife. That's right. The very first class and fell in love with her the moment I saw her, but we couldn't quite get it together for about a year or so. So, when I got to law school, I began to develop an interest in criminal law, I believe, because as a kid growing up in New York, as I said, I'd had these experiences with people engaged in misdemeanor land, marginal criminal activities, some getting away with it, others maybe not so lucky. There wasn't really the formal stop and frisk type policy that was recently abolished and that came under such fire. But certainly there was an enormous wellspring of iniquity that needed to be addressed. And I thought that being a defense lawyer would be a great way for me to try to make a difference and help out other people. So my first clients came from people that referred them to me Mm. and who knew me as a young person growing up. And I had the benefit. I was fortunate enough. I had a very stable family. My mother and father raised us, and we had an exceptionally loving and warm home, modest nonetheless, but warm and together and close-knit. And there were people who were maybe living a couple miles away from you that had a very different reality. You intersect with them in school. So... I was fortunate enough when I began to practice law and I'd spent a couple of years at a smaller law firm before going out on my own to have people begin to refer me, not the biggest of cases, right? Like nominal cases, right? And I then grew that network into some of the largest cases that were coming down the pike, federal cases in the 1990s and the new millennium. Any cases that you're able to talk about? And all of it comes from kind of coalition building and network building. You know, in the very beginning, I worked for a small law firm that did a lot of work representing international narcotics traffickers. And I was the young lawyer that went to jail. I was like the stunt lawyer that had to write the things and go to jail and do all this young lawyer type (laughs) stuff. Hard drugs, right? (laughs) (laughs) And in the course of doing that, I found a lot of people who were in really tough times in their lives, imprisoned and away from families and oftentimes facing lengthy mandatory minimum sentences for being a courier of drugs, for some role in a conspiracy where they were the proprietor and owned the stuff, they were making a nominal fee. And I began to, in the course of feeling that pain, find a means for myself to bridge very, very well and draw things out of people in a way that was really, I thought, powerful. And it enabled me to be my client's biographer to the sentencing judge or to the jury, and to get a positive outcome by using these emotions that I had and harnessing them to the task of knowing people. And I thought that was really a remarkable thing. After
1: I left that law firm I began to practice on my own. Can I interrupt for one yeah. second? How much of the connection do you think transcended into the outcomes meaning how that bond that you had the empathy in understanding your clients how from taking it from understanding their position from you <sighs> to the jury and judge. Judge yeah, my cousin Vinny. Or my of cousin course, Vinny, yeah, like Vinny yeah. really cares about yeah. his client,
0: right? And the other dude's just yeah. like a nitwit, right? Yeah. There's something about being passionately committed to a human being that a jury sees. It's something that you convey. It's like a believing in the human being that you're representing and being their advocate and being their voice when they can't really speak it. When being able to stand up and defend a person against the state is a real compelling act of heart. And it's scary sometimes. And it's, I've gone white from the experience. But I think that having that mindset, that heart set, and it's an honest one, right, is one that has enabled me to win a number of outcomes that if I didn't care about the person, I probably wouldn't have won. People who care about their outcome frequently do better than people that are ambivalent, yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry, I'd cut you off. You talked about then, so you Uh, transitioned from... So I then moved practice, right? And I began to have a lot more clients who were significant federal fraud clients, white collar clients, security clients, boiler room type people, end of the 90s, beginning of the new millennium. And it's so interesting because those securities, boiler room type clients, began to expose me to the first clients I had who were allegedly tied to... Lacosa Nostra and the alleged mm-hmm. mafia, right? And that, what does that mean? Like, this friend of ours or oh, Cosa? Oh, this is, you're a friend of mine. Friend of, my, friend of ours. Yeah. This is a friend of mine means he's not a made dude. And if it's yeah. a friend of ours and you guys are made, then that's some other made guy. These are all purported rules of the purported mafia. But I then began to have a few more clients that were charged with those types of crimes. I tried the case for my client Peter Gotti, who was alleged to be the head of the Gambino crime family during a certain period of time, in which the government alleged he'd conspired to kill Sammy the Bull Gravano. And at the same time, because it was a racketeering trial and that has multi prongs to it, we were defending against the claim that he ran some kind of or sat on a concrete commission that you have to kind of pay if you want to build anything in New York. So I had that trial. We lost that trial. We lost that appeal. We did a very good job in that case, but ultimately couldn't overcome the evidence. I have won the only entrapment acquittal I've ever heard of, where the entrapper, the person that manipulated and inveigled and cajoled my client to engage in criminal activity, was the United States Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. That was a pretty good one. I enjoyed winning that. There was something poetically just about that. And then I represented a Nigerian woman in an advance fee fraud case, and I got the only acquittal I've ever heard of in the United States of a defendant in a Nigerian advance fee fraud case. And the key to winning that case, of course, was subtly arguing to my jury that I'd picked of 11 women that her husband had this Bengali-like grip over her, and there was no way of knowing what she had ever done intentionally, right? Which is, of course, the linchpin of law's intent. So I went to that mafia period, then I went to this kind of period of all-purpose, really kind of represented the mafia cop, Louis Eppolito, won the reversal of his trial conviction in the Eastern District of New York for racketeering and multiple murders. We then lost that case on appeal. The Second Circuit reversed it. The Supreme Court sustained his conviction. But along the way, I was doing more and more and more of these cases. I began to do a number of really kind of big-scale cannabis cases. And these are just the trials. Like 95% of things are not proceeding to a trial. They're they're proceeding to a plea. And so along the way, I'm representing a lot of people. And again, pretty significant cases. And doing a lot of negotiation with the government. And getting a lot of sentencing reductions for my clients under the federal sentencing guidelines, both when they were mandatory and today when they're merely advisory. Tried my... Last federal trial was a seven-ton marijuana case in the Southern District of New York, which we lost. However...
1: <laughs> Seven tons.
0: And this became the pivot, if you will, for federal criminal law in What, and what year are we talking? 2015. Okay. I tried that case. We lost. The client was facing maybe 15 years in jail, having lost the trial under these guidelines. I got him relief from the mandatory minimum under something called the safety valve, provision of the minimum. The guidelines were still over 10 years, but there was no minimum. I then persuaded the sentencing judge to give him a variance from the guidelines downward, and he received a sentence of 15 months, having lost trial in a 7-ton marijuana case. And as a result of that, my friends in the Southern District in the U.S. Attorney's Office tell me they don't bring that many federal marijuana cases anymore, at least not marijuana alone. And indeed, they don't. And so I did a really great job yeah, you said the diminishing there. the whole client pool for me in the Southern District of cannabis cases. But that was something I thought was really, really kind of monumental, or at least it, it healed and helped the landscape with respect to cannabis. So... That began the transition. I have a pretty healthy docket of people in federal cannabis matters now, not in Manhattan. I've got a sentencing coming up in the Northern District in a few weeks, which is Albany, that kind of area. And I've then transition as you might imagine with this whole industry and me going to these events and talking about these things and knowing about cannabis from the level of regulatory and statutory and federal criminal law and new york criminal law all the way through the process of understanding the shifting sands what's going on in different states what licensing requirements there are in different states i've tried very hard whether it's to do the news on my weekly show, which as you know, you've got to be like prepared to do, right? So you got to study that stuff. But I found that by putting all that together and then going to networking events, I was in a position to take the things that I've been enjoying and passionate about and learning about and then to talk to other like-minded people about it, many of whom are looking for a lawyer they can trust. That's amazing. I mean, you're in your zone. You are in
1: flow, as they would say. I have a microphone on. I'm well lit.
0: <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> what could be better?
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I mean, it must be so much fun. I mean, you're pursuing your passion. You're helping people. This is something that you're really excited about. You're meeting great people. Let's talk about the cannabis community. Let's uh-huh. talk about some of the people that you've met. You know, let's first just talk about the community at whole. How would you describe this movement? Here's the thing. It's like we're almost a group of people that have something
0: unique and separate and apart from the macro culture though now we're becoming the macro culture right whereas i said in the beginning of the show for many years the older people among us were not in a safe space right cannabis was stigmatized you couldn't get a job you can't get in the mil- still can't get in the military actually when there became this kind of movement or revolution and there was first the medical movement and people had the right to use cannabis for medical purposes, first palliative and end of life, and then more mainstream, insomnia, anxiety, etc. There began to be this diminution of the stigma, right? And then when you start to actually apprise people of these things like Alcohol kills a lot of people, and so do cigarettes, and you don't have that with cannabis, this benign, mildly, beautifully, beautifully psychoactive substance, or if you're into CBD, just an anti-inflammatory. But that, when you start to look at the studies and make the arguments and say, but this is a safer alternative to those traditional sin substances that people use for fun in a non-medical recreational manner, and then you apply it to these medical uses like titrating people away from opioids, or using it as a first line for chronic pain. Instead of giving people the opioids first, you try the weed. There began to be an evolution politically and legislatively with respect to the way that people viewed cannabis. And you then began to see a lot of people who had previously been opposed to legalization, seeing the impact of medical cannabis upon a loved one, whether it was an epileptic child or someone who was wasting from chemotherapy or from AIDS. Because there's really, the proof is in the pudding. There's nothing more persuasive for somebody than watching a patient benefit through the use of cannabis if you're opposed to recreational use. And then when you talk about recreational use with people, the community today is a community that has witnessed firsthand and has studied and knows the history of cannabis prohibition as a means to socially control and over-police certain communities, communities of color in the inner city, just like crack was used in the same type of way, and heroin has been used Mm -hmm. in the same type of way. And so today, when you are in a room of people who are in a safer space and you've got kids that don't even know about this kind of unsafe space, right? They're just all like there and they've got an invention and they're all like completely unstigmatized out in the open. It's really amazing. They're doing blockchain with cannabis. They've got a passion to build a gigantic greenhouse. I was talking with someone earlier today. They want to grow a thousand acres of hemp and they're going to go do it, right? Like right out of the gate. And this past year they had a slightly smaller project, but you go to an event and you see these people and you talk to these people like me, elders who remember this kind of historical march, and you're in a place with people who are like-minded, who are passionate about this, who care about social justice, criminal justice reform, who know what the war on drugs has done to people, who are opposed to the war on drugs, are opposed to racial profiling, are opposed to stop and frisk, are opposed to mandatory minimum sentencing, are opposed to people being incarcerated without bail, and who believe that this new industry should be all-inclusive, all walks of life, all orientations, all backgrounds, and that everyone should be able to have a seat at the table. So now you're in a group of people who not only love this plant, but you have an affinity for, and that's a heavy thing. If you've ever been, like, somewhere foreign, some odd place you've never been before, and you happen upon somebody who's got a little weed, that's like kind of an immediate bond right Mm -hmm. so now if you extrapolate that we've got the love of the plant and everything that that has meant for us all individually And then the love of people that's brought us together and the belief that we can legalize it for reasons that involve fairness and that involve ending a certain form of bigotry and that involve giving people equal protection of the law or being allowed to use their medicine for purposes of saving their life or being able to travel onto federal land as a medical marijuana patient or being able to pursue their passion through their employment or getting a security clearance in the military or being in the military or getting cannabis as a veteran, we stand for all these things that are completely the right thing and when you're with a group of people like that who are on the right
1: side of history, it's really an amazingly powerful feeling. That's amazing. We'll rejoin our conversation in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast as well as our other episodes, please support us using patreon. Just visit patreon.com/ networkwise. All patrons will receive early access to podcasts, and exclusive networking advice. That's p a t r e o n dot com slash networkwise. Thanks for listening, and now let's rejoin the show. So, I'll tell you an interesting story. And I actually meant to call you just as anecdotally a couple weeks ago at an event at a friend's fiftieth birthday party. And a guy comes up to me, and we, we get to talk, and he's, he's very well-to-do. Uh short story is his daughter has epilepsy, mm-hmm. and he was extremely anti, mm-hmm. but he loved to drink. Short story is the only thing he could do to help with his daughter was through cannabis, but he was hesitant. He's like, I'm not just going to give my daughter something without myself taking it first. So not only did it help his daughter from the epilepsy, but he enjoyed it. So he quit drinking. He says his relationship with his wife is better. He's the healthiest he's ever been. His daughter is doing fantastic, and now he's a big contributor to the cause.
0: That's a really good story. Yeah,
1: What I've found is that drinking is
0: a very, very tough thing for people to transition out of, right? It's like a bottomless pit that doesn't end. And I think that the use of cannabis as treatment for alcoholism is a harder one and use of cannabis for treatment or titration away from some other form of controlled substance in a more relatable form. Mm. But that's good to hear.
1: Yeah. Have you heard of Michael Pollock? No. Oh, he's more on hallucinogenics, but he's got an interesting book and he's an interesting guy that you might want to look into. I'll pollen like, for pollen? Maybe it's pollen. It could be pollen. Pollen. You're talking about the guy that wrote this book
0: called like the... Botany of Desire, aren't you, Michael Pollan? P o l l. Thank you. All right. So I guess yeah. you do know the who he is. Botany of Desire, bro, <laughs> and he just like wrote a book about these psychedelic experiences of yeah. his. Yeah, he's an exceptional author, right? And he has this premise in Botany of Desire because for those of you that don't know me, I'm like a plant obsessed guy, right? I collect orchids. I've got a, a USDA import permit for rare and endangered species plants. although I think I'm like a, to renew it soon, right? But I've been like really collecting plants in my home in Manhattan, putting them under, of all things, LED lights. And some of the best, literally the best things for mass marketing, cultivation, horticulture these days come from cannabis developments and cannabis innovation. But Michael Pollan wrote this book, The Botany of Desire, and left me with this fantastic thought, which is we work for the plants. We like to think the plants work for us, but we work for the plants in a number of ways. We propagate them and allow them to spread. We eat them and then we spread them on our own. We take care of them and we help them with hybrids and mutations and clonal and tissue culture and everything that's now being done with plants is something where the plants have us working for them. I think that the injection into that equation, it's not maybe something that's kind of nuanced is the role of genetically modified organisms in this relationship and whether that's a factor
1: that really harms the plant in a way that's irretrievable. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Michael Pollan. Yeah, Yeah. thank you for (laughs) clarifying (laughs) that. So back to the community for a minute. I mean, I just know the people that I've met and some of the amazing people that I've met through your channel I've been really impressed with and I've noticed that there definitely is a community, there is a network, people genuinely want to help each other. What do you see people doing within that community that maybe you're not noticing that they do, that other communities don't necessarily share? I think there's a lot of not-for-profit work now, and I think there's a lot of community work
0: towards ensuring diversity and inclusion, right, in the industry. I feel like Cannabis legalization represents a clean slate to help a lot of people who've been historically set back and to provide people an opportunity to own a business, have a significant role in a business, participate in something at the same level as anyone else. And I think that the groups that are pushing that correctly forward are really remarkable people like Cannabis Cultural Association. By the way, you met all the core of Cannabis Cultural Association when we had but seven members and they just invited me to be on their board. Do you know what our membership is now? I think you just said 3,000 people. Over 3,000 people. I was at the original. 3,000 people and we were the masters of ceremony for this year's Cannabis Parade and Rally in New York which was fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. But that group We were out in Patterson a couple weekends ago. We were speaking at a Masonic Lodge, right, to the community. Mayor was there, city council people were there, about opportunities in this nascent cannabis industry. And that was like inner city talk with people. I was on a panel talking about, don't make yourself vulnerable, know your rights, stay safe, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I think that that's really kind of a cool thing that's being done at a grassroots level. Every week you see a combination of events like that, that events that bring speakers to a forum like the Women Grow events, the Gather events, the On the Revel events now, and those are occurring with regularity, and they're for-profit. You pay a ticket price, you go, you hang out, you have a lovely time with people who are in this community from all walks of life, literally, and, as I said, passionate about a core thing that in your Venn diagram you can
1: really understand. Yeah, that's one thing that I've noticed from some of the events that I've been to, and I go to a lot of different events in a lot of different industries, but in the cannabis-specific space, It's amazing how approachable people are and people are really there to meet other people and to benefit a cause that's higher than them versus but like you said, a lot of it is nonprofit versus some of these other industry events that I've been to, whether it's finance, whether it's technology, where people are sitting a little more on the sidelines or a lot more passive. No, this is like you you want to build your network. We go to these networking events and you're
0: in a room in these, at least in New York City, right, which is West Coast, West Coast. People talk about the West Coast is so far advanced. I'm on the faculty of Dam University. I do a law component for them and I was talking to their dean, Asim Sapal, who, of course, has been a guest on my show as well, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And he has informed me of this data point, which I found very interesting. After California, the second highest number of graduates of that whole program came from New York. Of Amsterdam. Yep. Unbelievable. New York. We've had a vibrant underground cannabis economy. The city of New York Consumes, I don't know, a million pounds a pot a year, Uh right? So there's a lot of people who know a lot about cannabis. There's a lot of money in New York, obviously. There's a financial hub. There's a lot of people that want to bring that money and become involved in cannabis, invest in cannabis, and go to that space. And it's one of the only places where in a two hundred person event you can find people who are growing, extracting, licensing, distributing for licensing people, financing things, investing in things, involved in private equity companies, involved in ad companies, involved in consulting firms or in the advocacy groups. And so during the course of any one night, right, you go to a networking party and it's like, if you get one good idea and you meet one good person, that's like pretty good, right? You go to these events, you get a few good ideas and you meet (laughs) 20 people, right? And I've got like a bin of business cards of awesome people that I have met simply
1: by going and having a good time and talking about the thing that we all enjoy. Yeah. So you're at a point where you are clearly a thought leader, arguably one of the elite in the space. Before you got to that space, what did you have to do? Tell me about the relationships that you... How did you strike up these relationships? What have you done to maintain them? Talk to me about that. Oh, that's... What
0: well, you do when you're a kid, right? It's, it's not kind of everybody like, does. Uh, <laughs> well, for me, I applied the things that I was comfortable with in terms of my relating to people, right? And I found that that was what worked. I mean, sometimes you have people who have to force themselves to, I guess, network, right? Or sometimes people who network so much they got to titrate themselves back and shut up a little bit. But I find that I like going to events and talking to people. I like going to a good number of events, not all of those events. I'm not always out there doing it, but I'm not trying to pitch you, really. My pitch is simple. My pitch is, I guess I do have a pitch, which is I'll help you any way I can. If there's anything I can do to help you, just let me know. Call that's me. That's the key. Right? And that's it. And I'm not asking you for money or anything, at least not yet, right? Not yet. But, <laughs> yeah. but that's the truth of it, is like there are so many as I said younger people entering the space who deserve to be helped who deserve to be able to succeed in cannabis who deserve to really make the end of prohibition successful and come quickly and if I can help them if I can help any of them if I can mentor young people to be better at what they're doing whether it's cannabis or some other career or industry But I think it's doing the right thing. You're paying something forward since we all, at least the successful among us, frequently had mentors. Yeah. Did you have a specific mentor? Oh, yeah. I had a mentor named Bob Fogelnest. Robert Fogelnest, who's now retired, lives in Mexico. I met him when I was a student at the National Criminal Defense College, and he had just finished his tenure as the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I asked him for a job down there. And he said to me, who the fuck are you? <laughs> I don't need any fucking associates. That's what he said. And he said, but can you pay me rent? <laughs> he said, I'm going to check you out with your teachers. Because, of course, he was on the board of regents. He was one of the instructors. And maybe I'll give you a spot in my office, right? A couple weeks passed. It was a couple-week program. And each day I was wondering if he'd spoken to them and spoken to them. At the very end of the program, he said, I spoke to all your teachers, Right. And they all said the same thing about you which is that you're really arrogant and i was like and he was like just stop it they all say that you're the best student too so i'm going to give you an opportunity i'm going to have you meet the people in my office we'll rent you out this space and i'm going to charge you rent i can't promise you overflow if i give you overflow work i'm going to try to exploit you i'm going to pay as little as i can make your work as hard as, as i can all right And if things work out in the end, you'll be doing that to me. I had the great honor of learning to cross-examine from the greatest cross-examiner and of learning how to be an ethical and powerful and aggressive lawyer from somebody who was amazing in my mind. We tried a number of cases together our last trial was in 2008 recent just before Bob retired we were in Pennsylvania we represented I think the biggest diverting physician of opioids in the state of Pennsylvania for a period of time and Although we lost the trial, we won the sentence. It was another one of those things. I got a relatively modest sentence for the conduct. But I got to watch my modern-day Clarence Darrow in action, and he was amazing. We did end with Bob as my tenant and me bringing him into a bunch (laughs) of cases. And he was very prescient with his statements to me many years earlier. But, yeah, that relationship was extremely important to me, not just in developing myself as a lawyer, but as you can imagine, being the bridge to other lawyers and credentializing me with
1: other lawyers that didn't know me. Yeah. Well and then I've seen you pass that on. I mean I don't know necessarily from a legal standpoint, but I've just seen a lot of the other people whether it's through the cannabis cultural, I'm forgetting the name of it, but through them yeah, as the well. a lot of will do that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've just seen you, just, you're like, like <laughs> a Pied Piper, where people, they, they flock to you and you pass on this advice and you share that with them. But that's what you should do, right? That You do that too. I mean, I see people flock to you, right? I pay them well. <laughs> and they, and when they look up to you, yeah.
0: right? Because you're so tall also. <laughs> but that's what you do, right, is you pay things forward, you honor the people that helped you, You put yourself in, you want to do well, put yourself in the flow of life. You don't put yourself in the flow of life, you're like all choked and starved, right? You're in some little dripping, like... You have to put yourself in the flow, which involves giving to people as well. It involves listening, it involves hearing, it involves giving, it involves, like, having a good heart. And then people treat you generally the same way. I mean... Life ain't perfect, right? It's just like in cold blood. We're talking about it. You have a bad night and someone come on in and mess you up, right? There's all these people out there. You don't know who's who, but where you get hit by a bus or, or lightning, but by and large, if you try to do the right thing, it comes back to you in an enormous way. Mm,
1: That's funny. It's, I mean, these are all the things that I try to pass on to people in general, surround yourself with good people, do the right thing. And it pays itself in spades. Yeah, keep telling the kids that. Yeah, that yeah I agree, really do. <laughs> because you got this window when they're
0: young, right? Oh, and when yeah. older, they don't
1: want to hear your voice anymore, <laughs> you know? Not at all. I know that you've got to be somewhere today. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to talk about before I let you go?
0: I guess it would be this advice about the network, right? We're here, we're talking about network-wise, and I've tried to relate my remarks to the importance of the network. And I just said a couple things I think are worthy of underscoring, which are be genuine, try to honestly help people, listen to people. It's tough to remember people's names. You know, I've got some thought on this, like I read Dale Carnegie and everyone likes to hear their name. And so Adam, let's talk today. Adam, <laughs> Thank you, Adam, for having me on NetworkWise. But how the heck do you get there? I used to tease myself that the reason i'm not remembering other people's name is because i'm so busy trying to like hear my own name right and so i think the notion of the network involves the team and it involves you scrupulously being part of a team right acting as part of a team including people that you opt to have on your team in your mission and in your your activities so for example I work with a number of young people, right? And I am working with them on a project of some sort. They become part of my network on that project. I have conference calls with other people on the project. I always include the people that I'm working with. I CC them on the emails. I don't not include them. I ask them to come to the meetings, right? Even if I know that. Much of what's going on is educational for them. It's really important. And it's also about team building and consensus. And I also believe that having chose people correctly, when I'm an old guy, I'll be able to have someone like throw me a bone kind of thing, you know? (laughs) So, So true. But like just being here is great. You know, I must say, Having been on your show has been great. Knowing you is great. It's the beginning of, I believe, a much longer relationship. And we're going to be networking soon with our friends that we're developing jointly at my daughter's bat mitzvah. I can't wait. I yeah, mean, your, your 50th yeah. party was
1: awesome. Oh, I awesome. mean, that was just, that party was so much fun. And I remember, because it was late. You guys did like an yeah. impromptu, right? I mean, it we was did it
0: very late. I decided like a week before my party, I should have a birthday party. I'm turning 50 years old. And it's like not going to go away. So we did it. But that was fantastic. It was a great party. I, and there's I, another example of like network. and My dad was really elated to meet people in the network. Yeah. You know, he said, well, we your sister, your brother. brother. Yeah. Oh. And
1: it was great. We were, we were joking around because we got the invite like a week before. And I'm like, Man, we must be on like the B or C list. No, dude, there <laughs> was, there was only an A list. <laughs> was only an A
0: list. But I like, that's exactly what happened is I decided to have that, you know, really at the precipice.
1: Yeah. And I mean, the turnout, the people. I mean, I knew every time that we're out, I mean, everyone that I, I always walk away meeting some cast of characters, but that was fantastic. I mean, that just showed the culmination of the years and who you are, the people that you brought to the table. It was literally a week, right? It wasn't even... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, oh, you've yeah. stayed in touch with people throughout the years, and I think that is something that really speaks to the types of relationships that you've built. They, they transcend years. Friends from high school, oh, years. college, years. you know, people that you've worked with, people you've represented, people that yes. you're just involved Like everybody. You want to talk about a cast of characters, a motley crew. I mean, that to me... It's you know, more s- fun than a pirate ship, dude. I gotta yeah. tell
0: you, it's <laughs> like great. I must say, I am really, really blessed By having had so many people from so many different places be in my life with such a level of love. And principal among those relationships are really the clients I've had that I've tried to save from jail or that I've had to watch go to jail painfully. So that's been a really beautiful thing that I've leaned into. And so I guess I'll end by saying don't be afraid to face things that are a little uncomfortable but
1: beautiful and kind of lean into them. They may help you in ways you never really imagined. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to NetworkWise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network, The ones who succeed will network wise.